Welcome back to The Pilgrim Soul, a podcast about the journey of faith in the world of today. I'm your host, Sophia. And I'm Juliana. And I'm Adriana. And I'm joined today by my two-month-old, Pia. And welcome to our season one finale, the final episode of this first season. It's astonishing to have reached the end of our first season. And I don't know about you guys, but I've been just reflecting with a lot of gratitude and wonder on this journey and what unexpected things it's brought into my life um, over the past couple of months. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. Thinking back to when we started the podcast, it was just a fun idea between friends, something we thought would be fun. And we decided to, you know, put it in God's hands and let him do what he wanted with uh, our work. And it has flourished in so many ways that I never expected. And it's so obvious that it's not our own doing. And it feels like such a gift, such a gift in this past year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's been so inspiring for my own faith life even just hearing both of you share and witness your own testimonies, but also to hear from our audience and hear how our thoughts have impacted their own prayer in ways that we never could have manifested. And to just be so aware that it's God's doing is really humbling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really been an experience of the body of Christ and realizing how we are all united in the church and in our path towards Christ, um, even all of our wonderful listeners who we don't know in real life or have never met before, having that sense of unity and sharing the journey together has been really such a gift and illuminating for my own um, faith life as I view my participation in the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, it's been sort of a continual call to take seriously my responsibility. It's made so clear to me the fact that my journey day to day in the faith, my waking up in the morning asking to see Christ and to know him better and to serve him or not and capitulating, that that decision is for me, but it's not just for me. It's actually for the entire church. Mm hmm. Which I think actually is a good, so for those listeners who might not know, we're doing a Q&A for our final episode, um, and we received some wonderful questions from some of our listeners, and our first question actually touches on that reality that we're talking about of, of the body of Christ. So maybe we could launch into that now and, uh, and hear from Jessica. Yeah, so our first question was from Jessica, and she wrote to us, I'd love to hear about your experience of the body of Christ. How do you understand yourself as part of it, and how does this bear on daily life? And then she also kind of had a follow-up question. When faced with the suffering or needs of someone you love, a member of the body of Christ, how do you, quote, live the eternal within one's normal activity, end quote? And that's a quote from Generating Traces, a book by Father Giussani. This is a multifaceted question, I think, so I'm happy to just take a stab at answering a part of it. And what comes to mind for me is an image. It's the priest at Mass at a certain point in the Eucharistic prayer. I think it's right after the consecration. He says something like, grant that we who are nourished by the body and blood of Christ and filled with his Holy Spirit might become one body. And when I'm, you know, paying adequate attention, when the priest says this, this makes me remember that 
as I was saying before, my encounter with Christ, my unity with Christ is for the whole world. He gave his body for me, but for me, like insofar as the truth of my being is to build up and belong to his church. And so for me, belonging to the body of Christ, which is a reality that was inscribed onto my soul at my baptism, belonging to the body of Christ means that my identity and my mission is in relationship with another, with Christ and with his presence that continues on earth, which is the church. And so this like overcomes all of the objections of my sinfulness and my inadequacy and my distraction, because the point is that my I, my very being, my person is not just me. It's also Christ. Yes, I think that's for me, that image of of the Eucharist and, and the priest's prayer that for me sort of encapsulates what my experience of the body of Christ is. That's really well said. One thing that I would add from my own life is that my experience of the body of Christ, what has most made it a reality in my own life and has deepened my understanding of this theological and sacramental reality that you're, that you're talking about is my own experience of being accompanied. Mm-hmm. Once I was accompanied as a suffering member of the body of Christ by all these people in my life and by the saints, that helped me better understand how to accompany. I was just been thinking about this because, you know, in the past year or so, a little more, my husband and I have been asked to sacrifice something that has been very difficult for us. And we had so many people in our lives praying for us and offering the sacrifices of their daily lives for us. And we had been praying for the intercession of specific saints in heaven. And when finally this sacrifice was lifted for us by God, it was it was a really powerful experience because I knew that prayers had been answered, but it might not have been our prayers. It might have been the prayers of my friends, mm. of my family, of my husband's family, of the saints in heaven. And that is what the body of Christ is. Like we are united. Um, it is not just me and my husband in our isolated little bubble asking for help, but the whole church asking for help for our lives and God granting those prayers. And so that experience for me made this come to life and I hope helps me understand how to better accompany everybody in my own life in their own crosses as they come up. Yeah, I totally love what you're saying, Julie, about prayer because I do think that's such a clear way we can experience the body of Christ. And I think we have this experience even on a secular level with the emphasis in secular language on like sending good vibes, Mm -hmm. which I always find rather silly personally, (laughs) but I think it is a recognition of our core connectedness and what Christ desires of us in that core relationality. And I also think it speaks to who God is as a communion of persons in the Mm -hmm. Trinity, as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that our relationality and our recognition of the body of Christ is intuitive on some levels. Um, I was also thinking about this question in relation to mass, like Sophia mentioned. For me, a practice that I've undertaken in the past couple of years is when someone during the private meditation after receiving communion, my husband and I often sit 
up front in the pews. And I like to look at the members receiving the Eucharist and say with them the body of Christ Mm -hmm. and realize that they are the body of Christ too when they walk past me after receiving the Eucharist. And it always just moves me like so many people who I don't know, different shapes, different sizes, different ages, and they're all the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. And it's really a helpful prayer practice for me to then take that meditation out and live that in daily life where whoever I meet, they too are the body of Christ. And do I treat them that way? Am I as excited to host them in my home as if it was Christ himself or see them on the street or more importantly, be bothered by them, be asked or inconvenienced by their questions? And I think that's always a journey. I mean, we're fallen people and it isn't just like one meditation in mass that's going to change my fallenness so that I'm more easily inconvenienced the next time, but it's hopefully a slow, slow pilgrimage towards heaven. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's awesome. And I can't wait to pray that uh, at mass tomorrow. So thank you for sharing it. (laughs) And I think it, your point is, So true. There's like a new capacity to love. Both love yourself if you belong to Christ through this companionship Mm -hmm. of believers, but then also love the people around you, a love that doesn't come from you. And so it's not limited by your fallen nature. There's always hope in the body of Christ precisely because we are constituted by another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right that it totally changes the way that you look at yourself and the way you look at other people if you recognize them as the body of Christ. Um, And I think about this all the time as I'm watching my toddler sleep or putting him down and helping him to fall asleep and praying over him and thinking of him as like, this is little Christ's body Mm. now walking among me and living with me and how that impacts my capacity to love him. Um, becomes so much more infinite when I know that it's Christ loving him through me and Christ offering himself to me through my son. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As I think about practically day to day what it looks like to live into this reality, even when I don't feel it perhaps on a sentimental level, often I think it means being faithful to the common life that I have with other members of the church or specifically with communion liberation recognizing that I belong to them and that that transcends my instincts of how I would want to spend my time or spend my money or, and also, you know, to have a certain poverty of spirit towards them and accept my need for them and my need to be corrected and educated by them, which is really hard, but always so fruitful when I'm given the grace to receive them and receive their instruction as I would that of Christ. Um, So that's a really important part of it for me day to day. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I was going to say something similar. I think my awareness of my participation in the body of Christ helps me, it pushes me to receive love and to receive forgiveness especially from others that I know I do not deserve. Mm. And this goes back to something that struck me about your discussion the two of you had on the hospitality episode, but the way that this transactional nature of relationships is so ingrained in us so that we feel that 
even the acts of generosity and love from our family and our friends and our spouses have to be merited or repaid. And really how that contradicts what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. You know, I realized that allowing myself to be loved in these completely gratuitous, beautiful ways is allowing the other to love me as Christ. And then I learned from that too, to extend the same kind of love and not put those limitations on my own love and my own forgiveness. This is similar to what both of you have been saying, um, but that's another way that it practically extends into my daily life. Yeah, that's really beautiful reflection and so true. Should we move on to the second part of the question? Yeah, on suffering. It strikes me, Adriana, that what you said about Damien is maybe a good place to start. You know, looking at his little body, his little toddler body, and recognizing that that is the body of Christ. Um, It's challenging and has been a constant source of provocation for me over the past year to think about those who are suffering from COVID in, in any way, knowing that that person those who are members of the body of Christ, that person is me and that person is Christ. Mm -hmm. That suffering person is me and that suffering person is Christ. I do not have a good answer to this question. And so I'm glad Jessica asked it because it's been a real chance to reflect on, yeah, really, what does that mean then? How do I respond to or fail to respond to the fact that that person is me and is Christ? I do think like how John Paul II and Father Drusani and Father Caron have all said is suffering is an opportunity not to be missed, that it is an opportunity to enter in more deeply to the cross and therefore to really just sink into eternal life with the cross as our access point. And it's only possible through Christ. I mean, all of this is like, we can't do that on our own. I mean, suffering is meaningless on its own and it only has meaning in Christ. Mm Mm-hmm. I think um, part of her question was, when faced with the sufferings or needs of someone you love, how do you live the eternal? It It's easier, obviously, in instances of enormous joy and love to want to enter into that moment and just live it. And I sometimes, I think how many of us live, we treat time as if it's horizontal and don't let its vertical depth, which is infinite, uh, impact us. And I notice this so much right now in the season of my life with a newborn where I just want to soak up every moment of Pia and Pia and Damien's blooming relationship. And I feel as if I'm sinking into the vertical aspect of life and entering into that infinite depth that it offers us. Mm-hmm. And that's where I'm most able to meet God. In light of that, I think I have a couple insights on what it doesn't mean to accompany someone who is suffering. It's not trying to take it away or fix it. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely not making yourself and your own love the answer to the needs Mm -hmm. of the person who's suffering. One thing that's been helpful for me in accompanying a friend of mine who was quite ill for a while and another who was struggling with difficulties in the spiritual life, I came to the realization through these relationships that the thing that I could most do to help them was to live my own relationship with the mystery. The thing that I could most do to bring the hope and the new life of Christ into their life 
was to take seriously the needs of my own heart every morning and to sort of unflinchingly look at my own life and say, is there meaning in my struggle? Is there a presence that is walking with me? Um, because only by by remaining anchored in the certainty that is never static, it's always a journey, but that certainty that I have of my own relationship with Christ, that's the only way that I would have the strength then to remain with my friends in their suffering um, and not be afraid of it. And then also, you know, from there have the desire and the affection for them that led me to to pray for them and to sacrifice for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really powerful, Sophia, because that's so vulnerable to do. And I think of myself, I'm so much more oriented towards trying to fix problems. And But what you're saying is so true that how you're actually able to be with your friends in their own sufferings is through and entering into your own. And with that comes a deeper realization that you never really could fix anyone else's problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think something you said, Sophia, is part of my answer to this question too. And I know, Adriana, that it's such an inherent part of parenthood. So I'm sure you have some reflections on this. But essentially what you're saying is an essential step is realizing that the person in front of you does not and cannot belong to you. Yeah. Even when it's your own child or your own husband or your own mother. But that person belongs to Christ and you belong to Christ. And that therefore living your own belonging is what true companionship is. Because ultimately we all share that and that is the goal of our lives. But, you know, that accompaniment requires is so difficult because we have this temptation to possess even the most beautiful gifts of our lives. And so we have to constantly be living that poverty and that detachment in front of our relationships in order to truly live them, in order to truly love that person and to love their destiny as belonging to Christ. Amen. Yeah, that is so beautiful. It makes me think of Blessed Chiara Corbea Patrillo in her letter to her son who yeah. died right after birth and she wrote him a letter and it said you know how proud she was of him and all that matters in life is to know the father mm-hmm. and ultimately that's the goal of our lives stunning I think I speak on behalf of all three of us when I say that uh, we highly recommend her book we'll yes. put a link to it in the show notes yes And that we could probably talk about this question for another hour, but we should move on to the next one. (laughs) I think that's a great, a great point at which to transition to another question, one that we have from Jackie. um, As we're thinking about the eternal destiny of the human person in the embrace of the father, um, Jackie wanted to know if we would talk about what the soul is and why it is that we're immortal and how the soul is different from the spirit and how we stay rooted in in that reality. Either of you have a thought to kick us off? Well, I can start with some basic principles about the soul. Mm, Please. Um, So in Catholic tradition, the soul refers to the spiritual principle of the person, to use the words of the catechism, and to combat some misconceptions about the soul right off the bat. So the soul is produced directly by God when a child is conceived. 
it's not created by the parents and the soul is not pre-existing in heaven prior to conception and then sent down to earth. We as a human person are both a soul and a body. We are not fundamentally our soul temporarily living in our body, but rather uh, the two form the whole person. So that's an initial starting point. Yeah, and we affirm that every time we pray the creed, um, when we say we believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting, that our bodies will be resurrected and glorified too in heaven. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there are all sorts of like philosophical arguments for why this spiritual principle of the human person is eternal. And I think Aquinas maybe poses them most convincingly. But they're, they're accepted even beyond Catholicism as convincing philosophical arguments. So there are rational grounds for believing this. Uh, but speaking for myself, I think that the conviction of the eternal soul that I have comes from my faith in Christ and my belief that mm-hmm. what he teaches me through the church is um, reasonable to accept So I think for me, I trust that I have a soul and that it's immortal because of my relationship with Christ, something that cannot possibly be doomed to end. You know, the the kind of love that has loved me into being and that sustains me now is meant to be eternal. It's it's meant to Mm -hmm. last forever. Yeah, exactly. You're speaking a little bit to how we know and the why quite simply would be because God has created us that way. Through Christ's passion and resurrection, he has redeemed our mortal bodies too, such that we will be, they too will be raised in the resurrection of the body because he loves us so much and he wants us to be with him forever. And it, it sounds simple because it is. And it's it's a great gift that really speaks to the dignity of the human person and God's infinite love for each and every one of us. So what about the spirit? What's with that? Yeah, this is a good point. And I think that over the course of Christian tradition, especially in different areas of the church, East versus West, these terms have been used in different ways. So I think the confusion here that some people have is totally understandable. Um, But from my memory of my studies of theology, the church really pushes back against sort of a three-part view of the human person. So Julie mentioned body and soul. We would not say that the person is body, soul, and spirit, but rather that the spirit is an aspect of the soul. So the spirit is is the faculty or the aspect of the soul by which it can be raised to communion with God. You can get into theological details of precisely what that means, but in my own experience, it's really helpful for me to to recognize that there's a verticality to it, that there's a part of me that can be taken up into the life of the divine, even as my soul is just a human soul. Yeah, so you're saying that the spirit is, in a way, the religious sense that animates the soul. Yeah, we could think about it that way. Mm -hmm. Would it be possible then to think of ourselves being able to diminish our spirit within our souls, like we can squash the religious sense within us? Yeah, I mean, I think we can definitely bury and stifle the life of the spirit, suffocate it maybe in a way that's not quite the same thing as suffocating the soul. Mm -hmm. Mm. A tough question, though. We can link to Aquinas. (laughs) Have the experts explain (laughs) it. He can do our heavy lifting. Yeah. (laughs) 
Well, thanks so much, Jackie, for that question. Our third question comes from our listener, Julie, who asked, what have you learned from the last year of life under a pandemic? Has the podcast played a part in that? Another question we could talk about for hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can start with a couple of reflections. I think at least where I live in California, we're still very much in the midst of the pandemic. And so I'm sure that the my judgments on the experience will continue to develop and especially be refined once the experience is over and I can look back on it and reflect it. But I do think that it's been really formative for all of us in my in my own life. So one thing I noticed was that I had to learn to receive every part of my life, even the most mundane parts of my life as a gift. Um, because when things are were normal and I wasn't forced to confront the reality of all the mundane details of my daily life, um, it was easy to start thinking that I did things on my own and that I was entitled to certain things or certain experiences rather than realizing that in fact the opposite is true. On my own, I can do nothing and I have nothing. And it's become very clear in the past year when all those things that I had come to rely on as essential, taken for granted parts of my life were stripped away and I was left with nothing. Um, And so I think now as things have started slowly returning to normal and, and new experiences being reintroduced into my life, I've been much more grateful for them. Mm-hmm. It has helped me develop my relationship with God as my father who provides everything for me and who sustains mm-hmm. me at every moment and who provides for me even my groceries and the neighborhood that I live in and my friendships and my classes and to live all of those as gifts from a father who loves me. That has been one thing that I've learned. Dang. I would say you took up the Pope's challenge at the start of the pandemic, which Father Caron echoed, to not waste this time. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that's a beautiful reflection, Julie. When thinking about this question and the role of the podcast for me, I think my involvement and desire for the podcast and really bringing it about in a way, is a response to the pandemic and the isolation that it produced Mm -hmm. and my own innate reaction against that and desire for community while understanding the social restrictions, but recognizing on a fundamental level, I'm not made for isolation. Mm -hmm. And of course, I've been so blessed to live in a home with my husband and my two children, which isn't the case for a lot of people. But even with that, we are made for community and we live the body of Christ through the church and the community of people that we're with. And for a while, for a while, we didn't have public mass. And I knew that I needed to hear Christ's voice through other people still. And the podcast became another method in which he communicates to me. Yeah, that resonates with me too. What about you, Sophia? Living in the UK, you've had, similarly to Juliana, really, really restrictive. Yeah. Yeah, I read somewhere that it was the the third most restrictive in the world, which um, 
I don't know if that's true, what metric they used, but certainly wouldn't surprise me. Mm -hmm. I was grateful for this question because it gave me a reason to go back and look through my journals from the last year and just reflect on the path that I've traveled since the start of the pandemic, the path that Christ has has taken me down with the help and, and the support of my friends. And the, the phrase that just came to mind to me in prayer was one that we read recently in the School of Community, which um, for our listeners who aren't familiar with it is our weekly moment of gathering together in uh, communion and liberation. And it was from the book, Generating Traces in the History of the World. Jusani says, apart from the passion for the human glory of Christ, nothing can give joy to the heart with the slightest stability and balance. Mm. Apart from the passion for the human glory of Christ, nothing can make my heart glad. That for me, when I read it, whatever, a few months ago, it just blew me away with how true it was that nothing over the last year has given me joy with any kind of stability or balance except for passion, for his glory in my life, his glory in my circumstances, and his human glory. Like, what does that mean, right? His human glory, I think of the gospel of St. John, is that we recognize his presence and that we recognize that he's sent by God. That's his human glory. Um, My heart and the heart of of the people around me, that we recognize that Christ is present. Passion for that is the only thing that brings me joy. It's okay. So what does that mean practically on a day-to-day basis? Um, Like what both of you were saying, this has been a time of purification and renunciation. And yet I've realized that sacrifice is for my joy. If I say yes to it and stop fighting it and instead say, Lord, where are you in this? It's for my joy. It's for my peace. I don't instinctively respond this way when sacrifice is asked of me. But through prayer and through the companionship of the church, my passion for his glory has overcome my resistance to his will. Whether it's the sacrifice of not attending mass or the sacrifice of working from home for 12 months or the sacrifice of being lonely or whatever it is, if I stop fighting it, I can be at peace. And for me, this has been such a profound liberation as I think about my future, knowing that in one way or another, because my life is human, it's going to be marked by suffering. Mm -hmm. It's going to be marked by times of dryness in prayer or in work or relationship or whatever it is. But having had this experience of something that on the outside should have stripped away all my joy, but instead just intensified it and helped me see what I needed to do in my own life to recover the joy, you know, it's like, man, what do I have to fear going forward? Because the posture that I can have is just to beg that my passion for his glory might increase. And then, you know, I'll I'll be able to understand from inside what St. Paul says, that we are more than conquerors in all of these things because of him. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah, so obviously this is something I have to keep learning over and again every single day because I I don't wake up with the passion for his glory conquering my my instinctive nihilism as we talked about on uh, a recent episode. But um but that's why as we were saying with the body of Christ, that's why it's important that this companionship continues as well because I'm not alone. I'm not alone in this daily fight. Yeah, I love what you're saying. It also makes me think about in generating traces when Father Jusani 
talks about how rare it is that we actually have experiences that adequately meet the desires of our heart. And that's what exactly why he invites us to verify this through our own experience. Like you're saying, what in my experience has allowed my heart to rest in God's infinite joy? And it's these moments where he encounters me and and how you're saying you can't wake up like that and you can't produce it on your own. We have to wait for him. But that our heart immediately knows it because nothing else in the world actually offers an adequate answer to our desires. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love everything that the two of you have been saying. I would say to add one difficulty because this time has also been <laughs> full of difficulty and not just the moments mm. of of joy and gratitude. But for me, it's been really a form of purification in that this time has revealed interior attachments that I either wasn't aware of or I wasn't being honest with myself about their depth. So for example, in the first quarter that we had after the pandemic hit as part of our the school's reaction to the you know dramatic circumstances they got rid of grades for the quarter and um, I found it so much harder to study well and I'd never had the experience before to test my desire to perform well for Christ alone I really mm. believed that that was my animating motivation and I hoped that it was and I worked on that being my animated animating motivation but I'd always still had grades and so I'd never had an opportunity to test that and when I did it was harder to study well and that was really humbling for me and you know that's come up in a number of different areas of my life where Mm -hmm. I like to believe in the abstract that I'm detached from a particular relationship or experience or thing of this world. And then when it was tested, I realized that that wasn't true to the extent that I had hoped or believed. And so it was illuminating and purifying and encouraged me to continue uh, purifying those areas of my life that have been revealed to be imperfect in in this year. Thank you for sharing that. I, I can really relate to that kind of realization. I think something similar has happened in my life in recognizing the extent to which I'm attached to images and ideas of God and what the future might hold rather than to his presence now. And the pandemic, I think, has helped me recognize this and hopefully um, begin again the journey of purity of heart, of desiring his presence now instead of anything I could imagine or produce. Mm -hmm. This reflection that we're closing on on purification is actually a great transition to the last question. I swear we did not plan this. (laughs) (laughs) No, we didn't actually. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, our last question comes from our listener, Eric, who just asked us to talk about purgatory and said he doesn't understand it very much. So a very open question for us. Mm. I think I'd start by backing up a little bit, even from from that, just to say that the doctrines, all of the doctrines and dogmas that the church teaches us, we can verify them in our own lives. So it's not just an abstract proposal that we have to like somehow try to wrap our minds around Uh, we Mm -hmm. can actually test whether or not they have like a human relevance in our day-to-day lives if they help explain our reality and and they contain something that corresponds to my heart 
Um, so with that as like a premise for sort of a, an approach to Christian doctrine, I would say that purgatory is definitely something that corresponds to the reality of my experience. <laughs> like I would like to think that, you know, I, I do frequent the sacraments and I, I, I am in relationship, a state of friendship with God and in communion with his church. Um, I definitely don't feel ready to see him face to face which is, I think, the starting point for for this reality of purgatory. Yeah, I think that's a very helpful introductory conversation to Christian doctrine, Sophia, and definitely something that I'll use going forward. In specific, purgatory refers to the state of purification that the church believes occurs after death for some souls on their path to heaven. The Catechism describes purgatory as the state for those who die that are in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, as a place or state to achieve the holiness necessary to enter heaven. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that brings up questions about purgatory because we understand heaven is outside of time and space, purgatory similarly, so... The same questions we have with heaven, it's not a place. Um, And how long would you be in purgatory? They're metaphysical questions that don't have a perfect answer because we don't experience life outside of time and space. But I think analogously, Pope Benedict always spoke about purgatory as a moment or an Mm -hmm. instance of being purified. And I think for me, that's been more helpful than wondering how long a person's in purgatory in terms of days or years or months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would add to be abundantly clear, a soul receives its individual judgment at the moment of death. So at the moment of death, it is decided whether a soul will enter heaven or hell. And purgatory is the state um, for souls that will enter heaven and that cannot change after death but you experience purgatory first as purification so that the soul is ready and able to fully participate and receive the joy of heaven Mm -hmm. yeah that's really helpful julie because one of my favorite books is the great divorce which is an allegory of purgatory, and I think it's really awesome and recommend it. But in the book, the characters can move towards heaven or towards hell, Mm -hmm. which in the book is kind of described as further isolation. I also think is a really great way of understanding hell. But in the Catholic understanding of purgatory, once a soul dies and is in purgatory, they are going to heaven. It can even, I think, be understood as like a soul freely choosing this state of purification because he or she recognizes that there were these desires for other things Mm -hmm. blocking you from Mm -hmm. really seeing your desire from God. And wouldn't you want that cleaned so that you could really fully enter into your desire for God and live in that friendship. And so a soul just kind of throws themselves towards that healing. And it's a suffering, yes, because of the recognition that you've You've had this glory offered to you and chosen weaker things that ultimately didn't bring satisfaction to your heart. Mm -hmm. I would add that purgatory 
can often be falsely described or viewed as punitive, but in fact, what it demonstrates is the profound mercy of God, because if we die in the state of grace, but not completely detached from our attachments and our sin, he still does not close the door on us, right? But allows us to become perfect and purified after death. And this is a this is a great gift. I think too, Sophia, this goes back to what you were saying at the beginning that the doctrines can be verified in our in our lives, in our experiences. The experience of purification as the path to holiness is not mm-hmm. something reserved to purgatory, right? That can that can describe the whole Christian experience um, in scripture and in our own lives, as we see in the sacramental reality of baptism and you know in our daily experience. We constantly see that we have to die to ourselves in order to be reborn in Christ and to enter fully into relationship with Him. It's a very good point. I think another another one I might add to the existential balance here is the experience of receiving grace through other members of the body of Christ and knowing that in scripture, both in the second book of Maccabees, but then also in, in the parable that Jesus tells about Lazarus, we get this teaching about praying for those who are dead, interceding for the dead, we who are still alive. Um, begging that the dead might be delivered from their sin, which of course necessitates that there are souls after death who are in a process of purification. And for me, this very much corresponds to my experience of receiving grace, as you, Julie, were talking about, through my brothers and sisters in Christ who are instruments of his mercy in my own life. Yeah, I in the last couple of years, have really taken up seriously the provocation to pray for the dead and pray for souls in purgatory, in part through the intercession or inspiration for that idea through Padre Pio, who we named our daughter Pia for. He's considered a patron saint for the souls in purgatory. And during his life, he is a mystic priest in Italy in the 20th century. Um, is said to have been visited by more souls in purgatory than he was by living people while he was in the confessional. Um, He was just constantly visited by souls in purgatory asking for his prayers and asking for the sacrifice of the Mass. For those who don't know Padre Pio, he's a really amazing, holy, simple man who had incredible mystical experiences and also endured the stigmata for decades but he said if if we knew the suffering that these souls undergo for the purification, um, we wouldn't cease to pray for them. And I do think that's really important and perhaps um, a lost practice among lay Catholics. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. I also love Padre Pio. The, the one last thing I want to say, um, Sophia, you mentioned some of the scriptural support that the church finds for the doctrine of purgatory. I would also add that there are various verses throughout the Bible that discuss a purification through fire. So for example, 1 Corinthians. And since the early church and the early church fathers, those references have been understood to be referring to purgatory. So we do find support for it in scripture, um, though others may interpret those verses differently. Thanks for that clarification, Julie. I think of First Peter also as another example that talks about purification 
fire and also so many of the prophets from the Old Testament. To your point about prophets, Adriana, I'm currently working through a Bible in the Year program. Not Father Mike Schmitz, in part because he's a competitor of ours on the <laughs> podcast. Um, but that's definitely, while we are on hiatus, uh, that's one thing I'll be focusing my attention on is just getting more familiar with uh, with God's Word in that um, it's been a real blessing. So any, any listeners out there who are considering um, doing this, either for next year or to start anytime, really, I, I highly recommend it. Yeah, I love that you're doing the Bible in a year, Sophia, and I'm very moved to try that out myself, too. I think over the summer, my husband and I are hoping to start a school community in our home. So for any of our Boise or Ada County listeners, if you're interested in coming to a weekly gathering at our home and discussing Father Giussani and our own lived experience, then definitely reach out to me on our Instagram and through our email. Nice. How exciting. Yeah. What are you going to be doing this summer, Julie? There will be a lot of changes in my life in the next couple of months. I'm graduating law school soon in just two months and god willing i'll graduate and then i will need to start studying for the bar i start my new job in august and we will also be moving not that far away but to just another small town in the bay area so yeah big changes coming up but i'm excited big changes exciting changes that's great my life here in Cambridge is radically, radically stable <laughs> and uneventful <laughs> in comparison. I am excited, however, to go back to some of our listeners. I think I've mentioned it on the podcast. Um, we'll know that I translated a biography of St. Benedict um, from Italian into English. And since the start of the podcast, the manuscript has just been waiting for further editing. And so I'm excited to have a little time to go back to that and hopefully send it off to um, to the publishers. Yeah, that's so exciting. Yeah. But we will miss. We'll miss the podcast a lot and all of our listeners and our discussions among ourselves. I'm kind of sad. Me too. We'll keep praying for you guys. Please pray for us. And we can't wait to join you here again for weekly releases of The Pilgrim Soul. For season two, yeah, let us know if you have topics you would like us to cover or any kinds of requests or feedback. We are open to all of that. Yeah, we're not sure when season two will begin. Keep your candles burning, as the Lord <laughs> would say. <laughs> Thanks so much. And until then, keep living The Pilgrim Soul. 